Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. We are so glad you're here. For more content and upcoming events, visit anchorchurchcsra.com. Esther chapter 9, let's turn there together. And I'm so excited to conclude our series together today throughout the book of Esther. How many of you, this is your first time Um, maybe hearing a sermon series or even studying through the book of Esther. Anybody? This is your first time? Yeah, first timers. Let's go. Yeah, it's good. And and I've been through it a a few times before, but this is my first time ever preaching through it. And so that's a whole nother journey. Um, I'm preaching passages of the Bible that I would have probably have never just handpicked out, said, yeah, Esther 7, this Sunday, I'm going to preach that. And so that's what I love about studying whole books of the Bible. It really helps us tackle some passages that we might not otherwise come to. They might not make it on a coffee cup, but they might just be what God has for us this very day. And so Esther chapter 9, as you're getting there, we've hit on a few key doctrines throughout this series. Doctrines just meaning teachings, right? So a few of the key doctrines that we've uh, hit. We're going to unpack those in a moment. Well, let me just let me just um, have an intro scripture verse for us. I came upon these in my quiet time this morning. And I was like, "Wow, this is from the Lord." <laughs> just unmistakable. Had to share it with you. Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12. I, I was just reading through Psalm 33, just getting my heart right for today. And here's what Psalm 33, verses 10 through 12 says. Look at the screens real quick. The Lord frustrates the counsel of the nations. He thwarts the plans of the people. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. Happier, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen to be his own possession. And so there are three really key doctrines we've been driving throughout the series, and I want to put them on the screen just so we can kind of be reminded. There are really three Ps that I was really praying through before the series even started. Hey, these are the three theological concepts that I really want to help our little tiny baby church as we're in our infancy stage just really begin to embrace. And then this might even be be woven into the tapestry of the fabric of our culture here at Anchor, just, just to value these three Ps. Ready? The first one was the doctrine of God's Let's try that one more time. I'm going to do the, the uh, stereotypical lead pastor thing where, I, where we try it again. The doctrine of God's? So much better. Awesome. Yeah, the, God's providence. He's sovereign over all and will accomplish his will. All right, we're going to do it again. Get ready. The doctrine of God's? There we go. When he is silent, he is not absent. And then lastly, come on, it's in the word. Doctrine of God's? Power. There we go. He is able and will do the impossible right before our eyes. Has he done the impossible in your life? Can I get a testimony this morning of anyone that God has done a miraculous in your life? Anybody, he's done a miraculous in my life. He's done things in my life that I could not ever take credit for. Things where I said, there's no way that'll happen. I could not imagine a scenario where this will end well and it ends well or in tragedy and heartache and loss and in the mess of sin. There's just nothing redeeming that could come from this, but God does it. He accomplishes it. He writes the story on his drafting board. He takes his perfect quill and he authors the story that he has planned from eternity past. And he will bring it to past, to pass. And 
the plans of man that try to thwart his plans. No, he does the opposite. He thwarts their plans. As sinful man rebels against God's plan, God says, hey, I'm going to work in spite of that. I'm going to actually work through that. And I'm going to even use some broken, messed up things to accomplish my plan. And what has he done in Esther? He's worked in broken, messed up situations where you go, God, I don't see any hope. In fact, I don't even see your name. I don't even see you. But what do we say about his presence, friends? What do we say? When he is silent, he is not absent. He is not absent. He is with you. We're about to talk about that in Christmas. Emmanuel, right? God with us. He is a present God. And so there's a couple of encouragements for this morning. There's two very specific ones. We're going to start with our first one. Ready? So we're going to write this down. And here we go. We should, we should trust that God will vindicate his children. In seminary, in preaching class, they teach you, you should never say should. You should say like, we can, or we uh, maybe ought would be the softened, you know, the softened version of that. Don't tell people what they should do. Guys, I love you enough, all right? And I, I need this too. This is a should. We should. This is God's plan. And when I say should, that's not heaping guilt upon you. That's just telling you what God's plan is for our lives. We should trust that God will vindicate his children. Why should we? Because he's good. We just sang about it. If it wasn't for the goodness of God, we wouldn't be able to trust him. We trust him when things are messed up because he's good and he knows what he's doing. And if he wasn't good, we couldn't trust him. You guys see how the, that relationship works. So we should trust that God will vindicate his children. And we see this in the book of Esther. So let's go ahead and look at how this fleshes out in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Ready? I have an Old Testament verse and a New Testament verse for you. And I promise we're going to get to Esther 9. <laughs> All right? Here we go. Isaiah 54, verse 17. You've heard this before. It did make it on some coffee cups and t-shirts, okay? But it's a really good verse. Ready? No weapon that is formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment, you will condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their Vindication is from me, declares the Lord. Okay, this is the Old Testament. This is one of the anchor verses in the Old Testament that says, hey, the weapons that are formed, like there will be weapons formed against you. That is, that is also a promise. That in this life, because of sin, because of the rebellion of mankind, because God gave us free agency and we could choose to accept or reject his plan and design, and all of us like sheep of gone astray. We, we all say, no thanks God, I know better at some point. It's what we're predisposed to do. And because of that, these weapons get formed against us and we're thrust into this spiritual warfare that, whether you like it or not, is going on. But no weapon that is formed against you will prosper. What does this say? God will vindicate his children. Now, New Testament. Evan quoted one of the verses of this this morning. I love how God unifies things. Sometimes when we plan things and sometimes when we don't even talk about it, God just unites all these things together. So our New Testament example, let's put that up on the screens real quick. Romans 8, 31 through 33. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect, God's children? 
the servants of the Lord, right? Who can bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more, he has been raised. He is also at the right hand of God, and he intercedes for us. This is not some prosperity verse that just says God's going to give us everything that we ever want. But this is the verse that says, no, God has given us everything because he's given us himself. Amen? He's given us himself. He's given his own son. He came to this earth to do what we could not do for ourselves. And what we see in the book of Esther is he saves a people that could do nothing for themselves. They had no, there was no plan B. There's no contingency. It was an oh snap moment where it was like, if God doesn't do something, this is going to end really badly. I guess his promises won't prove true. I guess his word won't come to pass. But God didn't let that happen. And friends, he never, ever will. He will never let that happen. And so, I promise you we get to Esther. Here we go. We're going we're gonna to go chapter 9, the first four verses together. The first four verses together. And just read with me here. The king's command and law went into effect on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And on the day when the Jews' enemies had hoped to overpower them, I love this part of the chapter. Ready? Just when the enemies hoped to overpower them, what does that next part say? Just the opposite happened. Mm. The Jews overpowered those that hated them. Listen to this. In each of King Ahasuerus' provinces, in each of them, how many of them were there? 127, right? So that's a lot of provinces. In each of them, the Jews assembled in their cities to attack who intended to harm them. Not a single person could withstand them. Fear fell on every nation and nationality. All the officials of the provinces aided the Jews because they feared Mordecai. For Mordecai exercised great power in the palace. His fame spread throughout the provinces as Mordecai became more and more powerful. So this is the first four verses that we have here, friends. And what do we see? Again, God does the opposite of what is expected. This is his power. This is his ability. God is the God of great reversals. He takes things that are headed in a terrible direction and he turns it around. You guys hear that worship song that came out in the past few years, God Turn It Around? God Turn It Around? I love that song. Because, I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what Esther's talking about here. God turned it around. It looked like a death sentence, but it was actually, it actually became good news. Look no further than Calvary, friends, the hill which Jesus died upon. It looked like a death sentence. It looked like the Romans doing what they were so good at. They were perfect at their executions. No one survived. Everyone was humiliated. And what happened up on that hill? Salvation for the world. What looked like a death sentence was the gospel for all. And we can't help, I don't want us to miss the gospel in, in this book. You know, the whole book's about Jesus, right? All 66. <laughs> no matter what Old Testament book we look at, we, we can see the goodness of the gospel. We can see the redeeming message. And so 
We should trust that God will vindicate his children because he does. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament. We're going to continue on in verse 5. Before we do, remember how verse 4, I talked about how Mordecai became more powerful and more powerful, more famous. If you want to jump to chapter 10 this week, I'm not going to preach through that this morning because it really just talks about that, how Mordecai, uh, his influence grew, his power grew. Every time you see that happen for Mordecai or for Esther, it should just remind you, wow, God really is faithful. Wow, God really is accomplishing his plan. And so that's why they talk about it. So it's, not, it's not Mordecai flexing his power. He's not, he's not just trying to be arrogant, just like, hey, hey, put that part in there about how powerful I am, okay? He wasn't like Haman. Mordecai didn't ask for the favor or the big platform or any of that stuff, but he got it because he was humble and God knew that he could handle it. God knew that, he, that and this, this will happen as we humble ourselves. God, God will give us exactly the platform that he's designed for us, exactly the influence, whether it's a big platform or small platform. If you're faithful with God, hey, Jesus put it this way. If you're faithful with little, you can be trusted with more. And so chapter 10 tells us about that. But let's continue in verse five. And let's put that verse up on the screen because I didn't give them one through four. They didn't not, actually didn't put it up there because I didn't put it in the presentation. So I'll own that. All right, verse five, here we go. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword, killing and destroying them. They did what they pleased to those who hated them. Man, that doesn't sound very godly, does it? But what did this, this uh, solution that they came up with in chapter 8, what did it allow them to do? Two things, if you remember from last week, to assemble and to defend. This was a defensive attack. This was not, the Jews weren't looking for trouble, okay? They were going to exterminate the whole nation. And there was, a, God made a way for them to be able to defend themselves because they were defenseless up until that point. They were not going to mount a defense. And they were grossly outnumbered. I don't know if y'all remember me telling you last week, 15 million Jews versus like 150 million Persians. About one for every eight, okay? One Jew, eight Persians coming in. And 75,000 Jews lost their lives in this whole ordeal. So there was some anti-Semitism. There were a lot of people, a lot of Haman lovers who hated that he got what was coming to him. It probably profited from his wealth. You mess with people's money, you watch them get angry. You mess with people's idol, watch them get angry. And they mess with people's idol. And so, yeah, 75,000 Jews gave their lives so that many more could live. Greater has no love than a man that will lay down his life for his friends. So speaking of which, it has been Veterans Day week. Thank you to all our veterans in the room for your sacrifice. Um, it is deeply appreciated. Deeply, deeply appreciated. So we're continuing on. The Jews are defending themselves. They're succeeding. They did what they pleased. Yeah, they encountered opposition, but they really didn't encounter resistance. In the fortress of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, including, and it goes on to list 10 names that, uh, that I will not attempt to pronounce them all. We're just going to move on, okay? We're going to save a little bit of time, but there they are, okay? They killed these 10 sons of Haman, sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. So these are, Haman, Haman had 10 sons. These are the guys that he was coming home and flexing his wealth and power to. Hey, sons, I don't know if you remember, but dad's kind of a big deal. Here we go. So his 10 sons, they were killed. The enemy of the Jews, however, they did not seize any plunder. So we're going to unpack this section. There's several, several things I don't want us to miss this morning. I've already mentioned how this victory was nothing short of a miracle. 
But here's what I want us to know this morning. In the various battles of our life, lean into this this morning, God goes ahead of us into those battles. He prepares a path. Psalm 23, I'm gonna quote it in a couple of places, but Psalm 23 talks about he, he carves out these paths of righteousness for us to walk down. This is his plan for us. It's a path of righteousness. And God goes before, because God's not bound by time, right? We know this in our theology. God is outside of time. God's already, like whatever you're facing right now, God's already gone ahead of you and he has prepared the way for you to walk down in it. And this is the hope. I don't, I don't want us to miss this because I think sometimes we go, God, I know that you can see the outcome. I know that you have foreknowledge. I know that you'll accompany me along the way, but I don't think we realize this truth I'm trying to amplify for us, that he's literally gone ahead of you and worked out things already so that when you walk down, not that it's lollipops and candy canes all the time, because oftentimes it's not, but God is in it. He's, he's actively involved. God, is, like deism is so bogus. Deism says God just makes the clock. He's the clockmaker, divine clockmaker, sends it into motion and checks out. And he's not really involved with all that. He knows what's going on, but he's just kind of outside looking in. No, 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 no. God incarnated and came to this world and suffered and died like a criminal. That's how involved God is. Amen. He did that for you and me. So no, no, no. He, he's got his hands in it. And it's tough to see sometimes, but just know that. Receive encouragement for that this morning. Whatever you're going through right now, God has already gone ahead of your situation. He already knows about it. And the best thing about it, like a loving father, he knows about it already. He's gone ahead of you, but he doesn't trivialize it. God's not sitting out there going, what are you whining about, Brandon? It's going to work out. Suck it up, man. No, like a loving father, he's like, I'm going to journey with you through this. How does Exodus start out? The book of Exodus, right? God frees his people from Pharaoh. God saw everything that was going on, all the atrocities. The Lord heard their prayers. He hears your prayers, friends. Even if it's not being answered in the way right now that you think it should be answered and that you hope it will be answered, have persistence in praying. Keep praying and trust God with the results. But he hears you. He is not absent and he is not silent. He may be silent, but he is not absent. All right, we're moving on. We're moving on. I do want us to be careful, though, before, before we move on from, from talking about battles. Let's make sure, hey, Christian in the room, just receive this this morning, please. Make sure we're fighting the right battles. Make sure we're fighting the right battles. Now, what battles am I talking about? The battles that we should be fighting are the battles and campaigns that help us love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because I think sometimes what in Christian culture we can do sometimes is we go, oh, okay, a battle is just, okay, there's something I want and I don't have it. And so the fighting the battle is like me just trying to like ultimately get what I want. And it can create this selfishness in us. I have to shine a light on it for a moment. I have to just stop because I see it all the time. And we call something a battle. It's like, no, I really, I really don't think that's where, where the word is encouraging us. If it's not like, like the battles that God's talking about, like, like this was a situation with like righteousness and unrighteousness sin and death, okay? Um, and so let's apply this in the right way. 
The battles we're fighting should be the ones that are where we're pursuing Jesus in that battle. And so, yeah, it can be very real and true to life, but let's just really weigh our motives in that. And I preach that to myself first because we all know that none of our motives are completely perfect and it can be kind of messy sometimes. Why do I want that? Why do I feel like I need that? All these different areas. But God gives us, many of you have experienced this, so you'll amen this. God dispenses a courage that is beyond our ability. And this is what he did for the Jews. It's what he's done in the whole Old Testament. He went ahead of them. He routed enemies before the Israelites even got there. And in this situation, he gives them a courage to stand up to this. Guys, the largest nation in the whole entire world, they stand up to them. And what's at stake? God's covenant, God's promises, the whole existence of God's children. And God takes care of his children. Whatever we face in life, God's already been there. So what does the king do with that? Well, verse 11, on that day, the number of people killed in the fortress of Susa was reported to the king. They're bringing the king all the news. Remember, the king's kind of staying back so he doesn't get assassinated or killed. The king said to Queen Esther, in the fortress of Susa, the Jews have killed, destroyed 500 men, including Haman's 10 sons. He informs Esther this. Remember, she's very sheltered from this too. What they have done in the rest, what, what have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will be done. That is also another instance. Whenever we see a Hazarus say that, we remember, wow, God is with her. It's crazy that a king like a Hazarus would say that even one time. And how many, how many times has he said it throughout Esther? Over and over and over again. It's like a blank check. It's like, whatever you want, sweetheart. And it's like, did he really just say that? Like, Persian kings don't say that. It's whatever he wants, <laughs> and nobody else even matters. But no, he says, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek will be done. You know, if an evil king can make promises like that, how much more should we trust in a perfect king who makes promises like that? Now, didn't Jesus say something like this one time? Whatever you ask in my name, it will be done. There's a lot of people that struggle with that verse. Wait a second, God. I asked for that. It wasn't done. Therefore, I have a problem. That's not what Jesus means by that. Because what Jesus modeled for us was a surrender to God's will. We praise God in our prayers. We repent in our prayers, we ask God for the things that we need in our supplication. And then lastly, we yield to him. And we say, not my will, finish it out, but yours be done, God. So however you want to answer that, I give it to you. That's a humble heart. And Jesus said, blessed are the humble. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And so we're moving on to... Esther's final plea, okay? Keep thinking it'd be like the last one, but no, she does it again. But, but this is the last one of the book. Here we go. And this is, this is, this is huge. We don't even have time this morning to unpack the, the magnitude of what's going on here. But Esther answered, if it pleases the king, does that sound familiar? Yeah, she's done this before. May the Jews who are in Susa also have tomorrow to carry out today's law. It wasn't all over in one day. It couldn't all be over in one day. So, if she didn't ask for this, what would happen is that they would they'd go, okay, that's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys go ahead and defend yourself that day. But tomorrow, oh, we're coming. You better watch out. 
So the war's not fought in one day. There were people that were holding back. They were going to launch a, a second scale attack the next day. And she's like, King, give us an extra day. We got to have an extra day, which is still miraculous that this would all be resolved in two days. And, but here's the, here's the kind of troubling part. Ready? This is, one of those, this is one of those head scratchers in the Bible. And may the bodies of Haman's 10 sons be hung on the gallows. You know, it's like, whoa, Esther, calm down. Hold on. <laughs> you know, and no, no doubt. I mean, she's very, very much uh, interested in getting some justice, okay? She's queen. She's been given some power. Things are moving. The, the boulder is rolling down the hill. They've got some momentum. God is doing some great things. And there are, there are some commentators that are kind of hard on Esther here. And I'm not going to pretend for a moment this morning that Esther, um, you know, just like any of us, had perfect motives with this. She probably was angry. I mean, I'd be angry too. I, I could totally understand that. But I think really what was going on here, countless lives were saved by this happening right here. See, not only was Haman impaled on his own gallows, and his 10 sons were involved with that. They weren't totally sad. They were like, what? Dad, Dad did what? Oh, I had no idea. No, no, no. They were, they were in on that too. So they got what was coming to them as well. But with that example of this family, this evil family that tried to kill this family of God, with that example up, countless lives were saved. People saw that and went like, oh, I'm not messing with them. Nope. And so, again, God works in this tension of, of, of um, you know, just this mess of a situation that you just wouldn't think, again, that anything good would come from. And so she requests this happen. The king gave orders for this to be done, of course, because he loves his queen, and she has favor, as we've learned. And so a law was announced in Susa. They hung the bodies of, ten men, uh, of Haman's 10 sons. So Haman and his 10 sons are all impaled like kebabs right outside of Haman's home. And the whole city can see this. The Jews assembled in Susa. They assembled again on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Susa. But here's the last part we kind of breeze over, but they did not seize any plunder. Now, why is that included in there? Let me just give you the cliff notes, okay? If you want, I can send you some more information uh, after the service today. You can, you can read, read more up on it later or look in your study Bible or I can send you some articles. But here's what's happening. In 1 Samuel 15, Saul the Benjamite, he was the first king. Israel begged God for a king. Please give us a king like the other nations. So he did. He gave them tall Saul, all right? Tall Saul. He's a handsome dude. He looked like a great king. He's actually a fool. He's a coward. He didn't, he didn't inquire of the Lord. He did whatever Saul wanted to do. He's very vain, very selfish. He acted, he acted more like Haman than Mordecai. And what Saul did, Saul was supposed to, to conquer Haman's people, but he didn't. He got inventive. You know, like, like when God gives us instructions and then we get like super creative with how we want to accomplish that and then it ends up not being at all what God asks us to do. Parents ever have that moment with your children? You ask him to do something and it's like, that is not at all what I said. This is what happens with Saul. So he's unfaithful as a Benjamite to conquer the Agagites. And so this happens way back in 1 Samuel. What God started in 1 Samuel 15 and what was unsuccessful then, 800 years later, is now being resolved. What does that teach us this morning? Don't miss it. God's timing is perfect. Sometimes it takes 800 years for something to be worked out. 
There's something right now in the world right now. It may not be worked out for hundreds of more years. I mean, I hope Jesus comes back before then uh, with the way the world's going now. But, um, but, you know, it may take far longer than we would like. Man, I, I will own that myself. It always takes longer than I want. I'm so impatient at my core. God, God has to help me be patient. And so this 800-year journey is brought to an end. They didn't seize any plunder because the point wasn't to profit monetarily from this victory. The point wasn't money. The point wasn't violence. The point wasn't any of that. It was upholding the mighty name of God and that his promises would prove true and that his nation would be preserved. And so that is the point. And so we move on. We have Esther's final plea. She's not bloodthirsty. It's not about gore, it's about a message. Sending a message to the enemy. They showed restraint. They did not receive any plunder. And so in verse 16, the rest of the Jews in the royal provinces, they assembled, we said this earlier, assembled, defended themselves, and they gained not treasure, but relief and rest. Coming back to that in a second. They killed 75,000 of those who hated them but did not seize any plunder. They fought on the 13th day of the month of Adar and rested on the 14th. And it became a day of feasting and rejoicing. And still it's celebrated today. We're going to get to that as we get to our second encouragement today, as we round the corner for the last lap here. We should feast and celebrate God's faithfulness. We should. It should be a normal part of our, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving, right? It's a perfect time. It's almost, I, I definitely didn't plan that, all right? Uh, we'll give glory to God for that. We should feast and celebrate God's faithfulness. So the festival of Purim, or Purim, depending on how you want to say it. The festival of Purim is celebrated every year by, by the Jews still. The book of Esther is the foundation for this festival, Every year, Jews gather. We can go put the picture on the screen. This is a picture from like just a few years ago at, at a synagogue, all right? And there's a few things going on here, all right? You're like, is it Halloween, uh, Christmas? You're like, what is it? Like, you're like, what's, what's going on here? The festival of Purim, how it, how it works itself out now, looks like a combination of Halloween, the gift giving, like the dressing up for Halloween, the gift giving of Christmas, and St. Patty's Day Festival in Savannah, all right? And if you know, if you know, you know. So um, it's like a combination of that. You can go ahead and, and go to the next picture to see what I mean. So it's kind of like Mardi Gras, St. Patty's Day Festival, Christmas and Halloween all got together. But what is the main, well, what should be the main point, and what hopefully is the main point for many Jews in our world, is to remember that God vindicates his children and that he keeps his promises. And so the Jewish people gather together in the synagogue. Um, Esther is read from cover to cover. The kids come up in their costumes. They act out different parts. Every time Haman's name is mentioned, they go, boo! You know, they, they go, you know, you stink, Haman, and all that. And then every time Mordecai's uh, mentioned, yeah, you know, they, they, they cheer. So it's very interactive storytelling kind of stuff. And they, they feast. Of course, they eat and different things like that. And it's a big deal. Unfortunately, like a lot of religious holidays, it's definitely becoming less and less about that in like 2022 Purim Festival. I was looking at some pictures and I was like, that does not like celebrating God's faithfulness. Um, it's definitely a, a little different. But I want you to understand where this came from. The whole idea 
of this festival was so that they could feast and celebrate God's faithfulness. In Genesis 50, 20, we've quoted it once before. You've heard it many times. Genesis 50, 20 says, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the, pre the present result, the survival of many people. And no doubt, the Jew in Esther's day had this verse in mind as they celebrated. Haman meant it for evil, but God brought good out of it, and many people were saved. And so, the feasting, the rejoicing. There's some elements of Sabbath in this too, guys. There's some element of, of that to worship God sometimes looks like to rest. To worship God looks like to, to feast and just recognize that in the end times, that in the kingdom of heaven, there, there will be feasting and rejoicing. There's something very godly about eating food. And it's not just merely eating food, but it's sharing that celebration together and food being like a, a tool that's used uh, to remind us of God's blessing. As we're filled physically, we're reminded, hey, there's a greater fulfillment in Jesus Christ from this. So verse 18, they assembled on the 13th and 14th days of the month. There was feasting and rejoicing. And it's a holiday, look at the end, it's a holiday when they send gifts to one another. Mordecai recorded all these events. He sends out letters. He wants everyone to know and celebrate. Verse 22, because during those days, the Jews gained relief. They gained relief from their enemies. There it is again. That was the month when their sorrow was turned into rejoicing and their mourning turned into a holiday. Reversal, anybody? Gospel, anybody? There it is. Weeping may last through the night, Finish it out for me. But the joy comes in the morning. And that is what happens here. They were to be days of feasting, rejoicing, sending gifts to one another and to the poor. I love that part. So, so there was even a generosity aspect of it too. Again, sort of like Christmas is for us, you know. Uh, you give gifts to your family members, but then you may go serve at the soup kitchen or do a Toys for Tots drive or different things like that. And so the Jews agreed to continue the practice that they had begun. Mordecai had written for them to do. And so, and this is just really a, a, a synopsis of the word meaning in here. Just so you guys know, P-U-R, pur, that's a Babylonian word that literally means lot, and purim means lots. And so here's what's going on here. It's interesting. Um, it's kind of like the other week when uh, Georgia beat Tennessee. It did happen. Um, it, was, it was a great game. Many of you saw it. Go dogs. And... Um, you know, before the game, the quarterback for Georgia, Stetson Bennett, uh, his number got leaked. Like someone from Tennessee or sympathetic to Tennessee got his cell number and distributed it to all these Tennessee fans. And they were calling him like crazy and like just harassing him before the game. Just trying to, it's crazy what happens with college football. Um, but they were just harassing him, just sending nasty messages. And you know, this actually motivated him. He, he explains later, you know, this motivated me to play harder. And so during the game, when he, when he runs in this crazy touchdown, he like dives for the end zone and gets it over the pylon. He stands up and he takes his hand and he goes, call me. Go ahead, call me. T-shirts everywhere now, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of T-shirts with, you know, call Stetson Bennett, you know, and all these kind of things. And so it's, it's kind of like a flex. It's kind of like, it, you know, just saying, hey, you meant it for evil, but let me show you what came out of that. This is, the, this is their version of that. This is like Israel saying, call me, but not in a prideful way, 
but really like, hey, look at what our God has done. And so they name it Purim because the lots were, were uh, cast by Haman to determine when they were to be killed, but it actually determined their victory. It was the lots to cast the victory. And it was, and lots were, you know, supposedly guided by, according to Babylonians and the Persians, you know, by the gods. But no, it was guided by the one true God. And so it's interesting how, how the word form is. But let's just, let's distill it down to these two things as we close. Two things. Number one, and we're going to put this on screen so you can write them down because I want, I want us to remember these. And hopefully you've heard this before, but let's just, let's just pretend like this is the first time you've heard this. Hear it with fresh ears and fresh eyes. Salvation is a gift by grace alone. That's what Esther Dine shows us. Salvation was brought to people that day. Like their lives were literally saved. And it was nothing that they did for themselves. Yes, they defended. Yes, they assembled. But in and of their own power, they could not be victorious. They could not accomplish what they set out to accomplish. It was a gift. Why do they give gifts on Purim? Because this victory was a gift. It was a gift for them. And salvation through Jesus Christ is no different. It is not something that we've earned. Ephesians 2.8 says this, for it is by grace you have been saved. Not of works, lest anyone should brag about it, but it is entirely based on what God has done for us. Salvation is by grace alone. And we embrace it through faith alone. We receive it by faith. And friends, salvation is not just a gift that's given. And you go, sweet, all right, God gave the gift. I'm saved, cool. Yeah, I believe he gave the gift. All right, so I'm good. No, it's something you have to receive. Do I have to do any work to receive it? No, it's free to you. It costs Jesus everything, but it's free to you. But here's what you have to do. You do have to open the gift. You have to embrace the gift. You have to really receive it. And I'm afraid there's just, there may be some of us here today, even, that the gift is in your lap, but you haven't opened it. Does that make sense? The gift is in your lap, but we haven't pulled the paper off. We haven't opened the box. We haven't put batteries in it. We haven't, like, embraced this gift. It's like, yeah, there's a gift. Yeah, I'm thankful for it. Appreciate it. But have we received the gift? I pray that every one of you know what it means to receive the grace of God into your heart, to receive his salvation. And what does it mean? It means that every sin we've ever done, every sin that we are presently struggling with and every sin that we will ever struggle with or ever commit will be completely forgiven as far as east is from west, completely cast away. And you know what this gift ultimately is? It's righteousness, friends. Have you heard that before, that it's, that it's righteousness you receive when you believe upon the work of Jesus, when you embrace him as your Lord and Savior? You receive a righteousness that's from Jesus. It's not our righteousness. It's his righteousness given to us. The second thing is this. Victory is guaranteed for the children of God. Victory is guaranteed. In this life, Maybe. The victory that is guaranteed, though, if not in this life, occurs when we step into eternity. Because there are some that have been martyred for the faith. Their final battle did not end in earthly victory, but it ended in spiritual victory. And so that is our, that is our sure promise. 
is that if you are, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, the old is gone, the new has come, and that we will spend eternity forever with our maker if we belong to Jesus. And so we cling to that hope, friends. First Peter chapter one says that that hope is a hope that can't be taken away from you. No, no matter what country invades your country, no matter, no matter what persecution may come, no matter what happens in our lives, God promises a living hope to us available through Jesus Christ. Have you received this hope? Have you embraced it? Receive that gift for yourself. Receive the gift of salvation today. Everyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved, the Bible says. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that he's been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. That's the promise of Romans 10, 9. Call upon his name today for salvation. If you need, if you need the grace of Jesus to come and save you, you want that fresh start. I'm not talking about getting resaved. I'm talking about giving your life to Christ from now until ever, and that you will journey with Jesus, and you'll become a disciple, a follower of him. Maybe you already have, and maybe you're facing some serious battles today, as we've been talking about in the book of Esther. Maybe you got some serious mountains to climb, and you just need a reminder today. God will vindicate his children. And then on the way up that mountain, that we can praise him. We can feast and rest on the way up that mountain. We can even worship him in the battle, can we not? You know, they used to put the worship leaders out front, right? <laughs> With the flags and the banners. They didn't have swords in their hand. They had a worship apparatus. And they confidently went before the army and shouted the triumphs of God. Let us do the same. Let us ascend the hill, whatever battles that we're in. And may our first weapon be our worship. Amen? Can we stand together? Speaking of worship, we want to respond in this time. And again, this isn't just a time where we sing songs, where we read the words on the screen and just simply sing, but we worship. That's different. It's different than karaoke. It's something deeply spiritual that happens. It's when we come together and when we lift our hearts to the Lord. We shake the gates of hell with our voices because we believe this. And God can do so much, friends, with a bunch of ordinary people that gather together to worship an extraordinary God. Do you believe that? You believe it? Come on. God, we love you. Pray for every heart in this room that you would encourage, that you would strengthen, that you would save, that you would convict and lead to repentance in this room, Lord, that you, whatever you want to do, God, we yield to you. We focus on you. God, eliminate every distraction. Eliminate those parts of us that say, it's, well, we planned for a 75-minute service. We're at 76 minutes. Oh, no. No, God, may that be far from our mind. And we go, you know what? I'm not in a hurry to be out of the presence of these people that have gathered together to worship. God, help us to appreciate this moment, this holy moment of gathering together with other believers and maybe some who need to be saved today and just to gather together and just to gaze upon your glory, God, to gaze upon your grace. Lord, lead us in this time of worship. May people respond during this time in prayer, in song, in reflection, whatever it is, Lord, have your way in this place. Jesus, we lift this up to you in your holy and precious name. Amen.
Thanks for listening. For more information, visit anchorchurchcsra.com or follow us on social media at anchorchurchcsra.com.